This episode contains discussion about explicit content that's not appropriate for young ears. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Monday, September 25th, the Banned Books edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Karen Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who's 10, and we live in Los Angeles. I'm Zach Rosen. I make another podcast that's called The Best Advice Show, and I'm dad to Noah, who's six, and Ami, who's three. We live in Detroit, Michigan. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm the mom of three littles, Henry, who's 11, Teddy, who's six, and Oliver, who's nine, and we live in Tokyo, Japan. On today's show, we're going to be joined by Eamon Ismael. He's a Slate writer. Longtime listeners may remember he filled in as host while Dan Coist was on book leave. Essentially, he's one of our absolute favorite friends of the show. We're going to talk about his latest piece for Slate, about book bans. Then we'll wrap up with a round of recommendations. Don't go anywhere. Eamon, we're so excited to have you back to talk about your new piece, Closed Book. But first, can we have a family update? How are Musa and Noon? And I didn't know you had a second baby. Yo, surprise. I have a second baby. <laughs> uh, yo, the babies are great. This is actually kind of weird because today's the first day that they're both in daycare. I have an empty house for the first time in a long time, and it's weird. It's like quiet, and I'm getting stuff done. It's like totally it's nice, new. right? Yeah, it's like, I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Like, I should be cleaning something <laughs> up. Uh, no, the kids are great. Uh, Musa just turned two or a few months ago. Uh, Noon just turned nine months, ten months, something like that. It's all kind of blending together. You know, one thing that I've like recently learned that sort of changed everything from my whole parenthood outlook was that I'm really starting to just appreciate that I get to spend as much time with them at all. And all this stuff, all this pressure to like get work done, to clean up, that's all starting to feel less and less important every day. And I'm just at this point where I'm excited to just leave the mess, leave the sink uh, in a disarray, step on crumbs, even if they're Cheerios that have been there for a week, just so that I can get to that part where I can pick them up and tickle their tummies and then throw him across the room where he lands safely, lands safely on the bed. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's been her dream. I'm in a good mood today. Yay. Very How are the kids doing together? It's awesome. Uh, you know, I've heard so many horror stories from other parents being like, be careful, the second one is the worst. And now, you know, the, the first one is going to be like really easy. And that's how they, they trick you into getting a second one. But the second one's been way chill, you know, it's just entertained by the first one. So I, it feels like a lot less work off the bat. Yes. Uh, they take baths together. They, they, she's not crawling yet, but I'm not in a rush to teach her. So it's been a lot of fun seeing him run over break off a piece of his ego and give it to her so that she can eat it. You know, uh, he loves to share with her. He loves taking turns with her. Uh, he does this thing where he calls it like bouncy house, where he jumps on his crib or in his bed because he has a, he's a big boy. He's got a, a freaking bed now. It's crazy. Yeah. And then we have like this spring jump thing that hangs from the molding above the door that we just like slot the younger one in and then she can jump up and down. And that's yeah. like his favorite thing in the world. It's And while they're doing that, I could, you know, vacuum or pick up whatever. It's just, it's so easy. It's the best. It's so sweet. Watch out, though. My second tricked me into my third. Uh Uh-oh. And my third is feral. So (laughs) may that be a warning. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we've been hearing about books being banned and taken off of shelves and libraries here in the U.S. 
And Eamon, you recently went looking for a book called It's Perfectly Normal at your local library in New Jersey. Can you tell us about how that went? Yeah, so It's Perfectly Normal was published a long, long time ago. And ever since it came out, it's pretty much been near the top of the list for the most contested books. The ALA, the American Library Association, keeps a track of how many times the books are being contested across the country. And so that's, that's one of the ones that scores the highest. Uh, so it's a sex ed book. It's intended for children. And it covers pretty much everything from how babies are made to uh, how sex happens, how masturbation works, uh, how to explore your body safely, how to protect your body. And what I think is most striking about this book is that it's illustrated very detailed, right? So it sort of takes the scientific approach where it shows you everything that you could imagine about your own body. But it also, I think for a parent like me or other parents across the country who didn't get any sex ed at all, when you see these kinds of images like cartoon pictures of penises and vaginas and all this stuff, it, it could feel a bit jarring and shocking. And especially mm -hmm. when you see it's like in these cartoons that are meant to be child friendly. So I, I thought about that feeling. I never thought for a second that these books shouldn't be accessible. I just wanted to know why I felt this way about these kinds of sex ed books. Um, because I had like this clash in my head. I was like, I know these are good because these kids should be learning about their bodies. And I know for a fact that the more they, they learn about their bodies, the more in control they are and the more uh, it protects them from the kinds of things that other parents might be afraid of inflicting, right? So it teaches them to, to know that these are private parts and that they should be very careful about how they share it or who can, who's allowed to see it or touch it and all that, which is super important to teach at a very, very young age. But at the same time, I was getting this very squeamish feeling that I couldn't help myself but feel when I opened the book and I was looking through and I almost felt like I needed to shut it and hide it. And so uh, I wanted to lean into that feeling because I felt like maybe that was an overlooked part of the entire conversation around well, what books should be or shouldn't be allowed in the hands of our children. So I went ahead and got this book. It was very squeamish. I said that already. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was... Really, really eye-opening experience to talk to a sex ed professional uh, who advocated for the book because, you know, she, she said something that I didn't expect. She was like, yeah, no, it's totally understandable that you would feel this way. Yeah, no, I feel this way too sometimes. Yeah, no, it's, that's part of it being normal. And that made me feel a lot less shy about talking about it being uncomfortable for me to look at these pictures. Um, and it taught me a lot about why like the consequences of me not having a proper sex ed when I was a kid for growing up in an uber conservative family where we just didn't talk about this stuff at all and in fact if like anything was gestured even if there was like a kissing scene in a movie that was like my parents is cue to turn it off so mm -hmm. yeah I was really glad to write the piece I learned a lot about myself in the process and I'm really happy to I'm get, I've been getting tons of emails from people saying that they've that they're excited about the piece that they were interrogating feelings that they didn't have, they didn't know that they had before. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy about the way it turned out. Did you think you were going to feel this way about the book before you checked it out? Or, or was that surprising to you? It was surprising to me, you know, because I'm like very anti book ban because I'm a journalist. I'm in the business of writing and publishing. And so the idea of, shutting something out because that makes a few people uncomfortable, I'm totally allergic to. So I was expecting to open the book and be like, well, I don't know see what the big deal is. This is, oh, this is really important. And that, that's sort of what I was expecting myself to feel. 
And when I opened the book and I saw naked pictures, naked drawings, you know, uh, maybe I need to illustrate some of what I saw because I know I'm going to come off prude, but I think it's really, it, it's relevant. Yeah, describe describe some of the stuff you saw that, that you found, like, produced the feelings of, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's not so much just, like, the nudity, right? It's it's fine. It's a cartoon. Uh, but then there's, like, instructions on how to masturbate. And there's this illustration of these two kids who look like they're preteens, you know, uh, going at it. Like, this kid's, like, sitting on his bed. Uh, his junk in his hand and he's going up and down uh, and he's sort of making this oh face and there's another one of a girl bending all the way over uh, and holding up a hand mirror and kind of has like this shocked face the images were of really really young kids and you know to to most people i imagine this is like oh yeah that's normal this is the sex ed book this is if any if it belongs anywhere it belongs in this kind of book and I totally get that, and I'm not arguing with that. My my whole thing was when I'm opening these these books, I'm getting like this pit in my stomach, where I, I feel like this shame. I mm-hmm. feel grossed out, and then there's like a spiral because I feel grossed out that I feel grossed out, and then it just sort of compounds. I know, I know, it's like exhausting being me, but that's just sort of sort of what happened. No, I I could totally relate. I feel that way every time I have to uh, have any kind of sex talk or the the topic. Like comes, I feel like I'm mounting my own, like a hurdle. It, it's about me, right? Mm-hmm. And I have to get over it and try to be calm on the outside so that none of that translates to the kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the sex educator that you talked with said, there's nothing wrong or bad with you as an adult or parent if this feels uncomfortable. You learn that, we can unlearn. It takes time, knowledge, education. Um, so I'm really interested in this idea of unlearning. What do you think goes into that and like have you been unlearning kind of since you you did these interviews yeah no it's that's a really good question because i felt like i needed to figure that out but i feel like i got somewhere so i'm happy to share my notes uh you know i think the first step was just acknowledging that this stuff does make me feel uncomfortable like that moment where i told myself it was okay to feel that feeling and then in fact maybe it's even worth investigating and getting the book in my own hands to see why I might be feeling that way. That was the first step. And then once I talked to the sex educator who was talking to me about this maybe being a consequence of me not having uh, any kind of sex ed, she sort of guessed it. You know, I didn't even tell her that that was the case. She was like, you sound like someone who didn't have any sex ed at all. What was your experience? And I was like, nada, nothing, zitch. That was it. Uh, So that to me was an eye-opening moment. But when it comes to unlearning, I think... It's not about just like opening these books and telling yourself that you need to get over it. I think it's a matter of telling yourself that you there's a reason to get over it, right? You need to put the feelings uh, of your kids, the desire to teach them better than what you learned ahead of how you're feeling so that you can keep continue to dig deeper. It's, it's not a process that I'm at the end of. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think I still feel comfortable looking at that kind of stuff if you were to put it in front of me right now. Uh, please don't. But at the same time, I think if I were to just prioritize the goal of teaching my kid to be in control of both of their bodies, to be in control of them, of their own autonomy, and to know what is and isn't allowed when it comes to their own bodies, all that to me feels way, way more important than these like really sudden and quick feelings of squeamishness. 
what's been easier than trying to just unlearn everything that I've learned since I was a kid has been just trying to prioritize and tell myself that this is something that's bigger than how I feel. And that uh, if I were to maybe teach my kid uh, early on that they have agency, that these parts of their bodies are sensitive, that they should be not afraid of those feelings, that they won't be in the same similar position if they have kids down the line. And that to me is a, a worthy enough cause. Mm -hmm. One of the experts you talked to, Dr. Carnegie, suggested that you shift your focus from control to influence. Can you elaborate on what this shift means to you and how it might benefit both you and your kids in the long run? Yeah. <laughs> so this was a funny moment in the interview because in my mind when she said that, I was like, no, I can control my kids. These are my kids. They're my responsibility. Uh, but as she continued to go on, I, I, I sort of knew what she was getting at, right? She, she's getting at the idea that uh, we aren't the one influence in our kids' gigantic, massive lives. Uh, even if we wanted to, it would be impossible. Uh, you know, we would have to raise our kids like Harry Potter, just like stick them in the cupboard, which I would not recommend, by the way. That's probably a human rights violation. So uh, what I would say uh, is that there are some aspects that I think we should try to instill in our kids. Like these, like, you know, for example, I don't want my kid ever eating pork. Uh, I, I want him to understand that there's like certain religious obligations, family obligations. There, there's some things that set him apart from other kids. And uh, yeah, so the idea that I can ever protect him from pork forever is it seems asinine, uh, especially since we just went to a baseball game. Uh, but at the same time, I'm sort of taking a similar approach to sex ed where it's like, when I put it in that terms, it made more sense that I can teach them to know what to do when they're put in those kinds of circumstances versus trying to insulate them and keep them from experiencing things that I know that they're going to experience. That and also we're in the, the freaking internet age, right? So uh, when it comes to the argument that many of the parents on the pro band side are making is that they, they want to protect their kids from losing their innocence. Um, and for me, it's like, yeah, I, I think there is a certain... Like if you want, if you do want to take that argument seriously, we're looking in the wrong places. We shouldn't be looking in the schools and the libraries. We should be looking on their devices, their the internet, their Roblox accounts, their Twitters, their TikToks, all of that. So, I mean, plus there's so much research out there that demonstrates that good sexual education actually leads to like delayed start of sexual activity and kind of like the more kids know and the more comfortable they are, the better they are to make these decisions. Um, so I'm always blown away by this idea. And, and I think fundamentally kind of what changed, like why I needed to approach it differently was like, Oh, listen, actually the more we talk about this, <laughs> the better they do. It's not the, it's not like, well, if we don't tell them anything, you know, mm. kids just won't figure it out. <laughs> it's like, no, they, they go out searching um, for this information. I wanted to say too, I, there's, there's a lot now. I think there's a lot more of these like graphic novelly sex ed books. It's definitely been the thing that has enabled particularly Henry to ask me the most amount of questions about things. And so I've been very grateful for that is like, they seem much more approachable um, to him about being able to ask me, not just because, I mean, he is, can fully read, right? So it's not like he couldn't get the information somewhere else. But I think it just has made it way less scary to talk about that there are these pictures and he can say like, hey, I saw this or I, 
kind of ask in a way that I think the reading itself doesn't. So I have turned out to be like a huge proponent of these more illustrated sex ed books, even though, Amon, just like you, I'm always like, okay, Mm -hmm. (laughs) buckle up, here we go. (laughs) Yeah, to add on that, you know, there's this really, really crazy case that happened uh, where this 10-year-old girl was in the library going through just random books, comes across this book, goes on uh, just reading spree in the library, reads through the whole thing, and she discovers this page about inappropriate sexual touching. And then she goes to her mom and she shows her mom this page and she says, mommy, this is me. So Mm. I think there's something Mm. to, you know, there's something there about giving our kids the language to talk about Mm -hmm. these kinds of things, Mm -hmm. right? Um, To the the know-how, because they don't know anything until we teach it to them. And particularly when we talk about their sexual privacy, their sexual rights, they don't know these things until we sit down and show them that they do have these they do have autonomy, that they can say no. And one of the, the, the points that uh, Carnegie made in the article that I was really glad that she did was she said, look, you can find a resource that makes you feel more comfortable. Say this book makes you feel uncomfortable. You, you're, we're not glued to this book. You don't have to use this particular book. Find something that does work for you, that makes it easier for you to talk about sex with your kids. But just don't do nothing because nothing actually is dangerous and actually can put your kid in risk. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, that that kind of makes your point. I was stunned by that stat you cite from the American Library Association. Just last year, there were over 2,500 titles challenged, um, which was up 38% from a year before. I mean, that's over 2,500 books folks have issues with. Have you, this, I mean, I think it speaks to the bubble I'm in here in Detroit. Like, I am not interacting with people who are who are submitting titles to their local library. Um, have you done any interviews with folks who are like earnestly, you know, uh, reading books and, and trying to get the band? Yeah, I have. So about a year and a half ago, I was interested in this idea of, uh, <laughs> I called it the, the book banning influencer, uh-huh. the kind of uh, mom who's posting these lists on Facebook uh-huh. uh, of books that, not just that she wants to contest, but she wants other moms or other parents and other zip codes across the country to also contest at their own libraries and schools. Mm-hmm. And I first noticed it on this Facebook group called Safe Library Books for Kids Arkansas, where it was kind of stylish, right? They, this person had, seemed to have a background in graphic design and was going through and making reviews on which books had which content, mostly LGBT books, no surprise there, uh, but anything to do with, uh, you know, sex in general. So there were heterosexual, but mostly LGBT books that she had a problem with. But she was also sharing instructions on how to issue FOIA requests, on how to contest books in libraries and in schools, uh, instructions on how to present your case at the school library boards. And this was before I got that too invested in like looking for Moms for Liberty. But this to me felt like, whoa, this is, it could start something like a grassroots, but this is certainly expanding to something bigger than that. Mm -hmm. And the more I stayed on this group, the more I realized that half the people in this Arkansas library group or library Facebook group weren't even in Arkansas. Some mm-hmm. of them were from Maine. Mm-hmm. Some of them were from Canada. Some of them were from, I think I found one person from Germany. And these are all people who are kind of 
jumping into the rhetoric against particular books, trying to get in, engaged with these other people who are way out of their zip code and trying to give them instructions and tips on how to contest these books. So no, it's not surprising that the numbers are up. I'm surprised that it's not even higher than mm-hmm. that. Uh, what it, What is alarming is that a lot of times uh, these parents haven't even come into contact with these books. They're just filling out the forms. They have the screenshots that show the the sections that they do want to contest. And a, a lot of these libraries, uh, I spoke to librarians too, uh, are not equipped to handle those kinds of requests en masse because every one of these requests, in some cases, uh, will trigger a review where they need to sit down and read the entire book from front to back because they don't just banned books based off of certain selections. They need to read the book from front to back and then sit down and have a debate as to whether or not this violates the library's terms or the school library's terms. And in, in those cases, when you're filing contest forums for hundreds of books at the same time, it's impossible to sit down and read them that quick. And so I, I, can, I can really feel for the people who are or have been working overtime trying to I don't want to call them a horde because there's these are like actual people, but uh, you know uh, it's just uh, this unbelievable, unbelievable number of uh, contested forms being filled out, and it's just I can't imagine being on the other end of that, having to uh, be the face of your library or be the face of your school board, and having to to tell parents, look, we hear you. This section might offend you, but we're not just going to pull it from the shelves. And these parents taking it to mean, oh, well, you're not going to do everything you can to protect their kids from being exposed to this stuff. Uh, I did also speak to other parents, uh, you know, who talked to me uh, under the condition of anonymity because they were afraid that they would be thrown into like this political hellstorm because they're afraid of getting canceled or whatever. Uh, That they were really afraid of their kids you know, stumbling onto a book that would turn them gay. Like they were talking to me about how they thought that the kids would just be turned gay if they write enough of this material. And a lot of it has just been politicized. It's hard for people to see the other side as people when they call them groomers and pedophiles. And it's just the worst thing ever when we're talking about books because these books are just sitting there on the shelves. And at the same time, it's just become this political lightning rod that is actually moving voters away from either party that they support. It's just become this entire uh, gigantic booger that's been begging to get plucked and it's just sitting there and it's not going to go away and it's getting bigger. That's, that's parent lingo. I feel like I feel comfortable talking to you guys about boogers. Absolutely. Welcome here. (laughs) Well, that is a great place to wrap. The piece is called closed books. It'll be linked in the show notes. You should go read it. Eamon, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. It's great to see you. Finally, let's move on to recommendations. Zach, what are you loving right now? So I can't like wholeheartedly endorse it yet because it's still in the slow cooker, but I have a good feeling about what I'm making for dinner tonight. <laughs> it's uh, the New York Times cooking recipe for slow cooker cauliflower potato and white bean soup which contains those things. Um, and also onion and garlic and thyme. I just added uh, like some, some dried herbs that I had in the cupboard. Um, and then you can finish it with some cream if you want. I'm, I'll probably add like sour cream. Um, I don't have that. I'll probably add some Greek yogurt. 
Um, and then you can top it with, this is the most exciting part, top it with cheddar and potato chips, which hopefully mm. will entice the kids to actually try this. Super easy. I prepped it in like 10 minutes. It's been, it's been cooking for eight hours. I can smell it. Um, and I will report back, but this seems like a winner. Um, one, are you just trying to make my stomach grumble more? Yes. <laughs> That's what it feels. It feels very purposeful. <laughs> um, two, is it, is it cooling down for soup or are you a soup in hot weather to cool down type of person? It's a very important question. Thank you for asking. And yes, uh, autumn is here. So it's like, it's probably like 62 right now. I think once it gets like below 67, it's yeah. soup weather. Yeah. I'm jealous. I want soup weather. Yum. Is it still super hot there? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How long does that last? Forever. I don't know. <laughs> it's not hot all year round though in Tokyo, posted. is it? It's like in the 90s every day. Wow. Oh my God. It's, but what, it's, there's a winter there though, isn't there? Or, they say, or is it like 50s? <laughs> they say a dry winter is coming. But so far we've oh. just had a humid summer. Dang. Uh, it's bad. Elizabeth, what are you recommending this week? Um, we've been playing this very fun game because um, we have a lot of waiting now for trains and things like that. Um, it's like we make up a choose your own adventure. And the funny thing is that a couple of the kids really like doing the making up and a couple of them really like to do the playing of the game. So Oliver is the one who really likes to make it up. But basically um, he starts out just like a choose your own adventure book. So he's like, you walk into a hallway and there's a staircase and a door. And then one of the kids will be like, okay, I want to open the door. And then he's like, you open the door and this is what happens. <laughs> um, and it's hmm. been really, really fun. Cool. Like to, Any of us can play. It's funny how the different kids play. Like um, Teddy loves to ask, like, is there anything I can pick up? Is there anything else in the room? Right. Which lets um, Oliver be really super creative. And yeah. it's just kind of fun because they're not because um, it's not like a book when there are endless possibilities, some of which are completely ridiculous. Uh, and it, it also just lets us come up with it like without kind of a plan so we'll be like okay the you know one more minute to the train so then he kind of has to wrap it up with all the different things he's you know had us picking up and things like that around it's just been really fun i know people are always asking what can they do waiting or in the car and you need nothing um except a little imagination so play your own choose your own adventure game that's great Wait, to clarify, there's just one author and the other people are just asking questions? Yeah, like deciding what you're going to do and asking what else is in the room. I mean, you could hand it off to someone, right? There there are no rules. Uh-huh. <laughs> but but we tend to be like one person likes to be the creator of, okay. of the world. And there can be objects like escape roomy. There can be um, ours tend to just be like different things happen between different doors. But sometimes you needed an object from a previous room. Um, you'll get to a locked door, but, you know, three rooms ago, there was a key kind of thing. Fun. Very cool. Yeah, it's been really fun. It's great. Super cool. What do you got, Jamila? Do you guys play the New York Times daily games like Wordle and the mini crossword? Shira does. I'm a big Wordle fan. I, pay, I play Wordle and the mini pretty much every day. And they've got a new game called Ooh. Connections. It gives you 16 words, and you have to group them into four categories. But it is way trickier than it sounds. The words are all related to each other in some way, and you have to figure out how. But some of your immediate assumptions about how the words go together will be wrong. I haven't gotten it correct for the last two days, but I'm obsessed with it. It's a lot of fun. 
It's a good brain teaser. So connections from New York Times games. Cool. Looking at it now. So sometimes are they sometimes they could be connected like both by meaning or like how the word works or that it has two meanings. Like it it can be anything. It could be anything. You know, it could be just meaning. It could be these are names of shows or names of airlines or traits associated with cowboys. I, yes, I see today's, I don't even know where to start, but I'm going to try it after this. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. So is this now fun. like your primary game or do you still play all the other ones too? <laughs> I still, I, now I have a routine. I do all three, usually with my coffee in the morning. Um, I do Wordle, then I do the mini, then I do connections. Mm-hmm. I'll tell Shira about it. And that's our show. Please subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you have a question or topic you want us to address, email us at slate.com. This episode of Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson and Mara Curry. Shasha Leonard is the voice of our listeners. Alicia Montgomery is VP of Slate Audio. For Zach Rosen, Elizabeth Newkamp, I'm Jamila Lemieux. Thanks for listening. <laughs>